So Job chapter 19. We'll read the chapter. Uh, We went through this last week. We didn't quite finish and we'll review a bit and then continue. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how will we hound him? Since the root of the trouble lies in him. You should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there is judgment. How does one answer a graceless person? This is the question we began with last week. That is, how does one answer someone who lacks any sense of grace in their dealings with you? It's a problem that Job faced in his dialogue with his friends, but particularly at this point, after his friend Bildad has spoken a second time. Bildad had no grace when he spoke to him. If you're right, you will be blessed. If you're wrong, you will be punished. There is no room for grace. Bildad's view is quite narrow and limited, and as a result, it is distorted because of those limits. Job is suffering, and so in Bildad's mind, he must have done something wrong. He must be a wicked man. God is limited, as Bildad sees it, in his options and how he can deal with Job. Either he will reward him or he will punish him. And though it is not stated explicitly, there is an implication that since Bildad and his friends are not suffering, then they must be good men. Uh, Job is suffering, therefore he must be a bad man. He must have done something. 
We saw last week that Bildad has a small view of Job. He doesn't allow him the benefit of the doubt. And in the second speech, unlike the first one, the first speech, he basically said, this is all your fault, but please repent. And in the second speech, he says, this is all your fault. End of story. There is no grace in Bildad. No place for repentance. But he also has a small view of God. That grace is not an option for God. That God only can do one of two things. He can either reward you or he must punish you. The fact that God, instead of punishing you, might be gracious to you doesn't seem to have occurred to Bildad. And part of this, I think, is because Bildad and the friends have a rather grand view of themselves. They, are in, they have no need of grace. God is rewarding them because they are good people. So how does one answer such a graceless person? Well, in chapter 19, we find how Job chose to do this. And as we saw last Sunday, unlike the other responses, this one is directed to the friends and the friends only. There is no part of this that is addressed to God. In the first part of his response, Job told his friends that if, and there's a big if there, if he has committed any sin, that is his business and his alone. In verse number four, he says, if it is true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. And as we saw that in this, Job is wrong. If by this he means that sin is merely a matter between the individual and the creator, that it has no impact or consequences in the lives of others. Sin is not a private matter and its consequences may in fact affect others. It is true that sin is a matter between the one who has wronged someone and the one who has been wronged. God is our judge. He alone knows our hearts and the extent of our guilt. When we sin, we sin against him. But it is not a purely private matter. On the other hand, Job is right when he says this is between me and God. If by this he means your lack of grace disqualifies you from any dialogue or any conversation about the matter of my sin or my guilt. We also saw how that Job spoke of the alienation uh, that he faced on every hand. And we read it again today. His, relative, his, his relatives, his kinsmen, his companions, servants, his fellow citizens, uh, intimate friends, even little boys make fun of him and his own physical health. His breath repulses his wife, but he himself, I think, is repulsed by his own condition. But in verses 21 and 22, you will note that one more time, Job reaches out to his friends and asks that they would have pity on him. As we've seen going through the book of Job, we need human companionship. We need our fellow human beings to stand with us. In verses 23 and 24, because Job anticipates that his friends will not have pity on him, he wants somehow there to be a record of himself, that the record will stand and will defend his integrity, that somehow he could write down his case in lead so that after he is long gone, people would still know that he did nothing to deserve what has happened to him. And again, we must ask ourselves, what is one to do in the face of unrelenting gracelessness and alienation? It is at this darkest point, point I think of blackest despair at rock bottom, that Job 
speaks in faith of the source of grace. He does not find any grace in his friends. And he speaks of the divine source of grace. Grace as found in redemption and grace as found in resurrection. I think it might be helpful just for a few moments if we would consider the question, what is grace? It's one of those Christian words that I think has been much abused and sort of leached of all meaning. It is that which God gives us which we do not deserve. It is his undeserved kindness and blessing that God freely gives to us. There is nothing we can do to earn it. Then this raises the question, well, if this is something that God gives, if grace is something that God gives freely, then why would Job expect, or, or why should we, that he should get any grace from human companions? After all, is not the source of grace divine and not human? I think we need to make a distinction between grace, which comes from God, and graciousness, which is an attitude, I think, that results from God's grace in our lives. So that in a real sense, we cannot give grace. Only God can. But we can have a spirit of graciousness, which I think can only come as a result of God's grace in a person's life. So that we may arrive at a principle that a person who does not demonstrate a spirit of graciousness may in fact not have received any grace from God. One cannot demonstrate or exhibit what one does not have. At the same time, I think we should acknowledge that we are sinners. And God has given us great grace, and oftentimes we are not gracious. But this is something that we should consider. The absence of graciousness in our lives may reflect a deeper problem. Jesus said in Matthew 9, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The reality being we are all sinners, but not everyone acknowledges that. Not everyone recognizes it. Not everyone says, I am in need of God's grace. Job's search for grace. We find in verses 25 through 27 some amazing words from a man who has suffered so much and who continues to suffer. And while verses 22 and 23, I think, reflect wishful thinking, if you look at the beginning of verse number 25, it starts out with the words, I know. One author puts it, Joseph abruptly, or Job abruptly breaks off his wishful thinking and proclaims his deepest conviction. With the heading, I know, Job affirms that his conviction is firm and decisive. And if you look at it, this is what Job says. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. In these words, I believe that we find grace in the person of the Redeemer, present reality, and in the reality of the resurrection, which would be a future grace in the part of God. The person of the Redeemer, and we talked about this a bit last week, and just to fill it out somewhat, the word that is used is now sort of become more familiar, I think, in the church. 
the idea of the Redeemer, the Goel, G-O-E-L, the kinsman Redeemer. It's not merely one who redeems, but someone who is a relative who redeems. In the Mosaic law, uh, being a relative, being a kinsman, brought with it certain responsibilities. Uh, a kinsman was to avenge a brother's blood. Uh, if someone was taken captive or sold into slavery, a kinsman was to redeem them, to buy them back. If somebody lost property, that they had to sell it because of some financial difficulties, a kinsman, a relative, was to redeem that and buy it back. And these functions point to deliverance, they point to restoration. And so it is not surprising that we find God referred to uh, as the Redeemer, the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. And in this passage, I believe that when Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, is alive, he's speaking of God, the one who redeems. But we need to be careful, and I think last week we, we sort of went over this a bit quickly. Let's not miss something of profound importance here. We should take note, in, in the English translation, Job refers to God as Redeemer, but the word in Hebrew is the kinsman Redeemer. That is, God is not simply one who redeems, but one whose relationship with us, with his people, is that of a kinsman, that of a relative. And so the author to Hebrews wrote, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. God's redemption involves kinship. One writer points the fact that elsewhere Job has used words like referee or umpire uh, or witness in speaking of God. That Oh, that God would sort of be an umpire, a referee to sort of sort this all out. Um, here it is not sort of a cold technical term, but a warm and vibrant title of someone who is my relative. Uh, and it speaks of family affection. Family solidarity. And this, as Job, or as he looks ahead, he will look to the resurrection. But at the present time, the present time, God is his kinsman redeemer. And it is a wonderful, profound, and humbling truth if we would embrace it. There is more. Job states that his redeemer is living. This is sort of in contrast to Job, who is near death. He is dying. And Job is afraid of dying. He does not want to die. But the Redeemer is alive. He is living. And if Job should die, the Redeemer will still survive him, will still be alive, and will be able to restore him. Job states that this Redeemer will stand up for him. The language is that of one who stands as a witness in court, that he will give decisive testimony in Job's defense. But we're told that the Redeemer will stand upon the earth in the end. There's, there are different opinions as to what this means. Some people think it means before Job dies. Others think it refers to the end of time uh, when God will stand in our defense. There are those who think that Job was convinced 
that he would not die until everything had been made right. That's possible. But there are, all, there are others who think that Job was speaking in terms of resurrection. We saw several weeks ago that in the midst of suffering, oftentimes we see more clearly, it is, I think, a gift from God, we see with clarity that we do not see when light is going very well. That in the midst of horrible difficulties, Job has insight that his friends, who are not suffering at all, that they do not have. I think this is a case in point. But one of the strongest objections is Job could not possibly be, be referring to the resurrection because there's no history of people believing in the resurrection at this point. That's a New Testament doctrine. It's not an Old Testament doctrine. And so why would Job say this about resurrection? Would he really understand what he was saying? I think that's a valid question and not something that we should just sort of brush off. But I think certain things should be kept in mind. While it is important that we understand what we believe, okay, believing precedes understanding. Uh, Augustine, uh, his famous saying, you know, I believe that, that I may understand. In the modern world, we've reversed the order. We want to understand, and if we do understand it, then we will believe it. And I, I suspect we need to go back to understand that believing that faith comes first and then understanding. But we should also acknowledge that complete understanding is not possible. So that when people say, well, Job could not have been speaking of the resurrection because he didn't understand about the resurrection. And I would simply ask, and, and we do? We, we have this complete understanding of what resurrection is? John himself in his epistle... We don't know what we will be like. We don't know what that's going to be like. But we believe it and we accept it. I think my point in the section is that Job, in his desire for graciousness from his friends, and he doesn't get it, turns to the grace of God as seen as God the Redeemer and God who will one day raise us from the dead. To me, the resurrection of the body is what Job has in mind here. That after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. The resurrection of the body is only possible because of grace. I don't know that we generally think of resurrection in terms of grace. I think we more likely think in terms of God's power, his ability to raise us from the dead. But it is a great grace from God. And then I would argue in closing at the end, the last two verses of this chapter, the result of grace in Job's life is that he now turns and warns his friends. If you look um, at verses 28 and 29, um, he warns them. You know, they are just piling on him with no sense of grace. And he wants to warn them, and he does. You know, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there is judgment. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound particularly gracious. Well, being gracious doesn't mean holding back from the truth. He needs to tell them, guys, there's something seriously wrong here. 
And you need to understand that, that you need to make things right. We will see this come to a culmination at the end of the book. But we see it, I think, beginning as a seed, a principle here. And that is when a graceless person speaks to us gracelessly, if I could put it that way, we should turn to the source of grace. And having received grace, we should then respond graciously. This will happen at the end when Job will pray for his friends. And so people are graceless toward us. They speak to us without grace. We should acknowledge that the source of grace is God himself. In the present reality, he is our redeemer. In the future reality at resurrection, and having embraced God's grace, we should then in turn be gracious toward others. And we find this time and time again in the New Testament. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. I think this is probably a familiar passage for most of you. But I want you, as I read it, to think of it in terms of the principle that when people are graceless to us, we look to the God of grace. And then, having received his grace, we respond graciously. Matthew chapter 5, the last paragraph of the chapter, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your, enemy, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul instructed the believers in Rome, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. In, in Peter's first epistle, in his call to imitate Jesus, he writes, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That is, in the face of gracelessness, which one could argue, surrounds us every day. We are to remember and to acknowledge that grace comes from God. In the present, as he is our Redeemer, in the future, his grace as he will one day resurrect us. And then we are to turn around and respond to others in grace. I suspect that it is much easier to talk about being gracious than it is to be gracious. But if we would acknowledge and understand what God has done, is doing, and will do for us, then by His Spirit, His graciousness should flow through us. 
to the world. One of the things that we mentioned last week toward the end of the sermon is the way that Job's friends are talking toward him without grace is oftentimes the way the church is perceived as speaking to this generation. I think because we have forgotten that we are in constant need of grace, we have become graceless. The Sermon on the Mount starts, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's us. We will always be poor in spirit. But when we forget that, then we become Bildad all over again. And there is no grace in us. I, I pray that by God's grace this would not be true. That as we are awakened to the reality of His grace, we would reflect that to others. Let's pray together. Father, it is in our nature to respond in kind. That when we someone strikes at us, we want to strike back. When someone says something against us, we want to speak back. But we are to be different. We are your children. We are to be like you the one who causes his grace, his reign, his son to affect not only those who are his people, but those who raise their fist in rebellion against him. May we take to heart the example of Job, who in being surrounded by gracelessness turns to you, the God of all grace, and then turns around to his friends in graciousness. I thank you for this time that we could meet together to worship you, to be with one another, to encourage one another. I ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. And may we reflect your love, your mercy, your grace to those around us in the coming week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together?